Welcome to the New Looked Fish Stripes podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. We are always looking to improve and love your feedback. My name is Aram Layton. I'm a writer for SB Nation's Marlins affiliate, Fish Stripes, and I am joined by Fish Stripes writer, Connor Newcomb. How are we today, Aram? Good, man. I'm ready to talk some baseball. Uh, we're going to start with the Martin Prado injury. What does this mean for the fish? Uh, potentially Dietrich, could Rojas fill in, maybe Brian Anderson. Our takeaways as spring training winds down, the fifth outfielder potentially being added to the roster. There's a lot of roster decisions the Marlins need to make with Tyler Moore, a fifth outfielder, Den Decker. We're going to talk about the starting pitching, Conley especially, and the keys to success. And finally, our predictions uh, around the, the league, but more importantly in the NL East and with the fish. Connor, what do you think about the Martin Prado injury and what this means for the fish? Yeah, so it's it's a tough situation just because, you know, it's an indefinite injury right now for Prado. Uh, Mattingly and the Marlins just don't know when he's going to be back. And obviously he had a very productive season last year, earned him that contract extension. But uh, I think right now the best option is Derek Dietrich over at third base. Uh, Miguel Rojas, you know, he gives you a good glove on the defensive side, but his bat's just not there yet like Dietrich's is. I mean, he hit 279. Last season, got on base at a 374 clip, um, seven homers, 42 RBIs, and 300, about 350 at-bats. So, I mean, he can swing it. He has a little bit of power, but he hits for a good average, and he gives the Marlins a solid left-handed bat until Prado can come, come back and stick himself back in the middle of the lineup. And I agree with that. You know, it seems that the Fish really like the pop that Dietrich can provide, but it seemed like towards the end of last year, he, he really didn't seem to be providing that, you know, home run pop from his bat. And he was really seemed to be more of a singles guy. If at all, he was hitting you slumping a lot as he assumed that role. But I think the dark horse here is Brian Anderson because he's hitting 349 this spring. You know, he's not going to knock the ball out of the park like a third baseman should, but neither does Martin Prado. He also could fill in if there's a tough lefty on the bump against Dietrich because, as we all know, Dietrich does not love lefties. Like you said, Rojas is a great guy to have on the team, a great you know utility player. But with the way some of these guys have been swinging it this spring between Tyler Moore, Anderson, Den Decker, I, I'm, there might be a chance that Rojas starts the season in AAA. He's hitting the ball really well also. So I'm curious what you think. Do you think Rojas, his spot on the team could be in jeopardy from what we're seeing from these other guys? Yeah, it's always a possibility um, just because, you know, Although he may be hitting well, his bat, you know, hasn't always been there. It was a 247 hitter last year and just about 200 at bats. But I think what he brings defensively for this team, I mean, he's not an incredibly elite defender at, uh, you know, at shortstop. I would say shortstop is probably his best position. But the thing is, he can play every single infield position for you. I mean, he even spent some good innings at first base last year, which, you know, could be a situation he could play a little first. Uh, platooning with Justin Bohr if Tyler Moore doesn't make the roster. But the fact that he can play every infield position um, and, you know, you could stick him out in the outfield and he could hold his own a little bit out there too. It's just sometimes even if the bat isn't there, uh, it's helpful to have a guy who can play pretty much anywhere. So you're basically ready for an injury at any position at any time with Rojas still on the roster. Well, it's funny you brought that up because you actually touched on my next question. I was going to say, if Rojas can play first base, why should the Marlins keep Tyler Moore? Do you think Tyler Moore is worth the roster spot if you can have a versatile guy like Miguel Rojas 
who's younger, plays more positions, better glove, obviously. Doesn't have the same pop that Tyler Moore has. And you know you need that power at first base. It'd be nice. You know, he has five home runs this spring, Tyler Moore does. So you'd like to have that pop against the lefties. But other than that, why not just keep Rojas and have Tyler Moore in AAA? And if you need pop, you bring him up. I think that's the biggest decision, really, for the Marlins, you know, in the next couple of days when they make their final final roster cuts. I mean, as you said, more five homers in spring training. The problem is he hasn't played in a major league game since 2015 with the Nationals. That year, you know, he hit he hit six home runs and just under 200 at bats. I mean, his best his best power season in the majors. He had 10 homers back in 2012 and just over 150 at bats. But he, you know, earlier in his career, he had seasons in the minor leagues where he would hit 30 plus homers. Um, it hasn't totally translated to the major leagues. But then again, he's never really had a full season as a starter with the with the Nationals. He was more of a bench bat. So, I mean, if the Marlins are looking for the offense. I could see them going with more and maybe Rojas loses his spot on the team, but I just think he's so versatile position wise. I mean, more, you can really throw it first and maybe in left field, but that's about it. And Rojas can pretty much play anywhere. I mean, I'm, he's probably Mattingly's, you know, emergency catcher as well, just because he's so versatile. So I think he just means too much to the team that if it comes down to Rojas or more, I think they would go with Miguel Rojas. And I agree with that sentiment as well, but, the, the only thing that makes me hesitate a little bit is just how power deprived, you know, the fish were at the second half of the season. Stan, yes, Stanton was hurt. Yes, Bohr was hurt. But should you have an injury to those guys, one of those guys, or should they not be swinging the bat like they, like they can, you're going to need that pop in the lineup. And, and, you know, you have that kind of feeling when Miguel Rojas is at the plate with nobody on that he's not going to change the score. You know, his goal is to get on base, work the count, etc. But Tyler Moore does have the ability to put the ball out of the park at any time. And there's something to be said about having a guy on your roster that can just come in, whether it's off the bench or in the game, that can just, you know, at any time change the ball game. And I think that's what makes Stanton so valuable, obviously, on a much grander scale. So it, it, it'll be very interesting, like you said, that that might be the biggest decision the Marlins have this spring uh, before the season starts to, you know, decide whether they want to have the versatility with Rojas or the power with Tyler Moore. Also, another a big trend in, in spring training has been the outfielders have been swinging it. And, you know, we mentioned the roster spot Tyler Moore or Rojas will take up. Is it worth the Marlins keeping a fifth outfielder with the way Den Decker and Sierra have been swinging it, or is it best that these guys stay in AAA and, and Tyler Moore and Rojas make the team? Well, I mean Matt Den Decker and Moises Sierra. I mean they've they've been at the major league level before. Um, they've hit a little bit at the major league level before. If the Marlins are really that impressed with them, I wouldn't be too surprised if one of them makes the team as a fifth outfielder. I just think that with the Prado injury. And, you know, still thinking about Moore at first and still thinking about Anderson maybe being on the roster as another third baseman. I just don't see a place where they would have a spot for a fifth outfielder. I mean, right now, obviously, you have Ozuna, Stanton, and Yelich as your starting outfield, and Ichiro is solidified as your fourth outfielder. I think a big part of maybe them not having a fifth outfielder is all of the bullpen arms they have available to them this season. I mean... They've obviously named the rotation with Adam Conley coming in as the fifth starter. So now you have a guy like Jose Urena, who is probably going to end up in the bullpen 
um, and they've brought in so many good bullpen arms that they want to maybe have a bigger bullpen this season than last, which may take a roster spot away from a bench hitter and keep the Marlins at four outfielders. Yeah, and there, there's something to be said about that bullpen because, you know, the, the Marlins rotation is just, it's not elite by any by any means. And I think the Marlins strategy going into the offseason was, you know, the price on starters is just way too high right now. And with the Marlins, in their mind, they're probably thinking, you know, we don't have the farm system to acquire these types of high-profile pitchers. I mean, as Baseball America just ranked them 29th ahead of only the Angels. And if they don't have, you know, the farm system to acquire a starting pitcher and they don't have the money or want to spend the money on on a starting pitcher, the the only way they can really – keep themselves in ball games is to is to solidify that bullpen and, and shorten the starts so now you have a deep bullpen from they add Tozawa and and Ziegler and and now you know you, your starter only has to go five innings maybe because that you bridge that gap to the ninth to AJ Ramos or to the eighth rather and you have Barraclaw and Ramos so that I think ended up being their their strategy because it was a much cheaper maybe not as effective as having you know an ace but it is an interesting approach to remedying a weak rotation. Yeah, I mean, obviously, everything the Marlins do, they're already going to be behind the eight ball with the you know the tragic loss of Jose Fernandez last season. But I think they're taking the right approach. I mean, they no longer, unfortunately, they no longer have an ace, but they did the right thing. Instead of trying to go after a starting pitching market, which, you know, it wasn't great, especially the free agent market. They went and got Volquez, who was you know one of the one of the better options, but not really a bona fide ace. Um, the trade for Straley, uh, a lot of backfire there with the prospects they gave up. But Dan Straley had a great 2016. The Marlins are hoping he can build on that. But I think they did the right thing in building up the bullpen. Tazawa's had a great career in Boston. Now he comes to Miami, where hopefully he can do the same. And Brad Ziegler has been one of the most really underappreciated, most effective relievers in baseball the last five years as Arizona's closer and then heading over to the Red Sox last season where he at least got a little more of the spotlight when Boston went to the playoffs. But I think those two guys will be huge. And David Phelps might be the biggest name for helping out the Marlins rotation, even though he won't be in that starting rotation. David Phelps can be a guy who can give you two, three innings every three or four days. And as you said, bridge the gap. I mean, if you can get a starter like Adam Conley or Tom Kohler to give you, you know, five solid innings of maybe two run baseball, and then you can hit another team with two and a third of David Phelps, then you can get the ball to the back of that bullpen. And really that's the key to success for the Marlins. It seems like. Yeah. That's, that seems to really be how the Marlins are going to need to win ball games this year. It's just, you know, you're not going to get very many complete games if at all from that rotation. So if you can put up some runs and we know the Marlins offense is, is capable of, of doing that and just get a decent start from, from one of those starters, one of the, you know, Straley, Volquez, Chen, one of those guys just to give you five, maybe six solid innings. They're in great shape. So they don't need too much out of that, out of that rotation, which I think was a great move because you then take a lot of pressure off of a rotation that is, is not impressive to, to be, blunt but going back to what you said about Ziegler I mean the guy has just been steady his entire career he he had a late start to his career he's 28 years old when he really broke in but in his nine years he 
His, his ERA is under 2.5, and he's just a safe machine the last few years. He's mostly served as a setup man in his career, so I don't think he'll have much problem transitioning back into the setup role, though he's been a closer the last couple years. And Ramos seems to be one of those guys that benefits from the energy, I guess, and the, the, the energy you have when you're coming in the ninth inning seems to be much more pumped up when he comes in the ninth versus the eighth. He seemed to get touched up a little more in the eighth. So some guys are like that, and some guys really like the big stage like that, and Ramos is one of those guys. Seagor seems to be one of those guys that can pitch in any situation, and he's going to make hitters get themselves out. So the bullpen definitely is a plus for the fish. I also think they really dodged a bullet by not getting Chapman and Jansen, as crazy as that sounds, but they would have been giving up a first-round pick. I thought from the jump that it was crazy to go after those guys anyway, especially for the for the price tag that they wanted. With, with the 29th-ranked farm system, you really don't need to give up any more first-round picks. And with the way the Marlins have drafted the last couple of years, they've already traded away one of their first-round picks in Naylor, Josh Naylor. And now Tyler Kolick has not pitched in, correct me if I'm wrong, almost a year, over a year. So the Marlins, to say the least, need their draft picks. So I think they definitely dodged a bullet there. Did a great job of getting you know low budget but very effective arms in the bullpen, in a bullpen that was already solid. And it'll be interesting to see how that bullpen shortens games for the fish and, and if that strategy will work. Yeah, you talked about Jansen. I mean, I'm a big proponent of having a closer like Kenley Jansen. I mean, I think he's the second best closer in baseball, second only Zach Britton uh, in Baltimore, at least last season he was. Um, and Jansen showed his worth in the playoffs, being able to go two innings to, you know, to close out the Nationals in the NLDS in, uh, in Game 5. But, um, I mean, they also, in a way, did dodge a bullet by not, you know, paying those big contracts to either Chapman or Jansen. I mean, it's nice to have a shutdown closer who's going to save, you know, 46 out of 47 games in a season. You know, it's big when you get a lead going into the ninth to almost know that you're going to keep it, but you don't want to give up that draft pick, um, you know, with the qualifying offer rules where you have to give up the draft pick and you don't want to give up all that money. Instead, you know, they spent it on Tozawa, they spent it on Ziegler, and they made the bullpen very good. And they already had a good 8-9 combination with Bearclaw and A.J. Ramos. Now you put Ziegler in the mix, you put Tozawa in the mix. You have a guy like Phelps, who I think they're making the perfect decision by instead of putting him into the starting lineup, making him that bridge guy, the 2-3 inning reliever. Um, I think even with a bad starting rotation, I think the bullpen can mask um, a rotation that won't be very good this year. Um, We'll touch on it later. I do think Chen will improve and some other guys can get better, but I think, and the other thing they have, which is very, which is a very good sign, is they have depth in that bullpen too. I mean, we haven't even touched on Dustin McGowan, who pretty much had a career year last year, um, being you know kind of a mop up guy, but then also was trusted with some big situations in seventh and eighth innings because he pitched so well. Um, you have guys like Nick Whitgren, who you know won't be the most relied on reliever this year, but um, he you know still is going to be a part of that bullpen, and then guys that are going to start the season in AAA, like Hunter Cervenka, who's a solid lefty, has a good slider, can get left-handed hitters out. Brian Ellington, you know, he can touch 100 with that fastball. He'll be waiting in AAA to possibly get his shot. I mean, they have some guys, Justin Nicolino, maybe he doesn't work out as a starter, but could be a good left-handed reliever who they could still go to. And a guy 
who may start in double A, Drew Steckenrider, who I think the Marlins just as a whole love as a right-handed reliever who could be up this year or next. So, you know, even if some of these signings don't work out in the bullpen or these other guys aren't pitching well, they have so much depth there in uh, the majors and in the minors in their bullpen that I really don't think it'll matter too much. You know, they won't they won't win the division with this rotation, but it can be masked by this bullpen and the Marlins could still have success. It's funny you said that. I've been hearing a lot about Second Rider and and people are really, really excited about him and, and there's not a lot to be excited about in this uh with this Marlins farm system, but a lot of people believe that Second Rider can have an impact on, on the roster this season and, and come into the bullpen. And it, it it's an excellent point that you make. Yes, the Marlins have a paper-thin farm system, but one thing they seem to have is arms for, on the majors and in the minors. Uh, like you said, Phelps, I think, is the, the the best move possible is to keep him in the bullpen because he seemed to just be a very average starter, but he also was much more injury-prone in, in the starting role. I just don't think he could handle throwing that many pitches every, every uh, fifth day. But the really interesting thing, like you said, these underrated guys like Whitgren, who who was very effective for a great portion of the year, and McGowan is a very interesting arm because he has great reverse splits. So he he was mowing down left-handed hitters as a righty pitcher. His changeup, I think, was really the main reason as to why he did that. But he had like a 2.82 ERA during the season, but his average against for lefties was, was phenomenal. And I, I don't have it in front of me right now, but you're gonna have to take my word for it. But lefties definitely struggled much more than righties against McGowan, but nobody really hit him period. And, and yes, he was put in positions for success for the most part, because like you said, he was, sometimes he he was a mop up guy, you know, came in up six runs, whatever. But I think he's ready to start to be eased into those more pressure situations because he did show the ability at times last year, like you said, to to get out of those jams. And if he has the ability to get left-handed hitters out, maybe the Marlins aren't in so much trouble with a guy like Cervenka starting in the minor leagues, who I I was a fan of that trade, though he still has some some things to learn and, and some command issues. Cervenka definitely can be an impactful player on the major league level next year. So the bullpen is something to be excited about, and it's very deep, like you said. So I'm not worried about the bullpen, and they take some of the pressure off that rotation. So pitching may not be as much of an issue as some Marlins fans think. It seems to be something that many Marlins fans are nervous about. Not many people are nervous about the offense, but you're hearing a lot of rumblings about what is that pitching and bullpen going to do? Are they going to hold up their end of the deal? And that remains to be seen, but... The Marlins definitely did all they could to give some sort of stability in that area. Going off of kind of the pitching like we were talking about, a guy that's kind of seemed to fall off the map a little bit is Justin Nicolino. He came over you know, a couple years ago in that Toronto trade, and of course not to beat a dead horse, but as many Marlins fans are painfully reminded, they picked Nicolino over Noah Syndergaard, and... That's something that's kind of stuck with uh, a lot of fans for a while. But not to focus on the hindsight here, they have Nicolino. So now the Marlins need to realize, you know, is it is it time to give up on Nicolino? Or is it time to f- fully move him to the bullpen? Or what should the Marlins approach be with Nicolino? Yeah, well, I mean, he's going to start the season in AAA, and you can almost guarantee he's going to be 
in the AAA starting rotation. I mean, if they do want to turn him into a bullpen arm, maybe they you know, start getting him to do that in the minors, but they're going to keep trying to turn him into a starter. I mean, he's only had 25 career major league starts. So he's still a really young pitcher and could still improve drastically. I mean, last season, an ERA just a touch under five and 79 in the third innings. He made 13 starts and five appearances out of the bullpen. And, you know, he was... He wasn't great, but one thing about him is his FIP number, which kind of projects how well you'll do, was lower than his ERA, which means in an average season he should do better than what he pitched. So, I mean, that number kind of shows that he should get better if he gets more major league starts. But, I mean, with the rotation how it is now, it's not great. Obviously, we've talked about it. It's one of in the definitely in the bottom half of the major leagues, but he's not right now better than any of those five starters in the Marlins rotation, which puts him in triple a and he's, he hasn't shown enough as a reliever to be trusted, you know, in the bullpen to start the season where he could make a couple spot starts. So he's just got to go to triple a to start the season, figure things out. And I don't think the Marlins are close to giving up on him. As I said, before, 25 starts in the major leagues, you know, it was a solid chunk of starts, but over two seasons, you know, you still give the guy another chance but if he isn't producing in triple a then maybe that conversation comes back you know is it time to move on from justin nicolino and what's is starting to make things a little unsettling for marlins fans i think is the fact that nicolino struggles in the majors but when he's sent down he tends to struggle a little bit as well he's not having that success that a top former top prospect should have at the double triple a level so I bring up the when do you give up on Nicolino idea because at some point you have to realize, you know, he's not doing well in the bigs. He's not doing well in the minor leagues. I know the Marlins were talking about getting rid of his slider. They didn't like his slider. There's a few things they wanted to change about his pitching. And, and, you know, sometimes it just takes one pitch for a guy to develop and makes all the difference in the world. So, of course, it's not time to give up on Nicolino, but the clock's starting to tick, I believe, because it seems like he just can't figure out how to get guys out just to put it simply. And his pitch seems very uh, fat coming into the zone because he gets knocked around in both levels. But like you said, the fifth is encouraging and it kind of leads me into the next question I was going to ask is the Dan Straley trade was a bit scrutinized as he came in. Marlins gave up, you know, Luis Castillo and some other prospects in a, in a paper-thin farm system that they really couldn't afford to give up anymore. And the Straley trade, no matter how you put it, the Marlins bought high. To put simply, they, they bought high. And you know they bought high, but in a market where you're kind of forced to buy high, the big issue is Dan Straley is a late bloomer. You know, he, he hasn't had a season like he had last year in his entire career. And the big question is, is it sustainable? You know, the, some of the sabermetrics say no. You know, sabermetrics aren't the end-all, be-all. At least to me, they aren't. To some people, they are. But his uh, his FIP was over 4.8, and that's a little scary. And you're looking at some of these numbers, and you can't help but wonder, is Dan Straley's season that he had last year somewhat replicable? I mean, he's going into his age 28 season, as you said. You know, last year, 2016, with Cincinnati was his best year 
ever. And it was, it was interesting to see because, you know, he made, he made 34 appearances last year, 31 of them were starts. So essentially he was a starting pitcher, made a couple, couple um, appearances out of the bullpen. But the interesting part was those two years before um, in 2014, he ended up only appearing in 14 games between the uh, Cubs and A's and made eight starts. And then in 2015, you know, he just made four appearances with Houston, three of them being starts. So, you know, he was a relied on starter all the way back in 2013 with Oakland. He made 27 starts, but all of his appearances were starts. And he had a solid season, a 396 ERA uh, and 152 innings. But after that, you know, he struggled a little bit, didn't play as much, was up and down, had a little bit of injury problem. Um, but uh, it's interesting that coming off of a 2015 where he made three starts to a 2016 where he makes 31 and his numbers just are the best of his career. Um, you know, the one thing with Straley, he allowed 31 homers. That's not ideal in a season where you pitch 190 innings, but it's not the worst thing in the world because if you're keeping homers to solo homers, they really don't matter. But you said his FIPS at almost 4.9, which is concerning. It's almost a projecting stat that says, you know, this year his ERA is not going to be 3.76. His strikeouts per nine were not really any better than they've been the rest of his career. So it wasn't the strikeouts that got better to make his numbers better. So, I mean, the advanced stats say he may not be able to maintain what he did last season. But, you know, the Marlins, as you said, bought high. They bought off of what they saw last year. And if it works out, if he can replicate last season what he or replicate this year what he did last year in Cincinnati it could end up being a good deal and he could you know really be the number two starter or the number three starter for Miami but you know you never know with a guy like Dan Straley who that was 2016 was his first full pitching season really in the big leagues since 2013 so you just never know and that's the big thing like you were saying his fifth is concerning but at least to an extent you know, those solo shots affect the FIP a little bit more than you can account for. So maybe the 31 home runs, like you said, if most of them were solo shots, maybe the FIP is a little exaggerated. But it's it has to be a little concerning if you're a Marlins fan because you can't help but wonder whether he will be able to sustain that. Going into the next man up in the rotation is, you know, Wei-Yin Chen. The Marlins are a year removed of giving him $80 million, and he is not pitched like an $80 million man. And he was the Marlins, you know, he was the Marlins opening starter last year, opening day starter rather, excuse me. And he just has not shown any signs of his Oriole self. And he's not been that $80 million guy. And yes, he's only been one season in Miami, but he also had problems with the long ball, giving up way too many home runs last season, did not go deep into games, could not strike hitters out at a very high rate. And put simply, the Marlins really need Wei-Yin Chen to be an anchor to this rotation if they want to have success in 2017. Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head right there. Chen is the guy uh, who they have to turn to. I mean, back in Baltimore, he he got better every season um, in his career with the Orioles uh, spent four years in Baltimore. The ERA essentially got better every year. His innings, you know, the most innings he threw were in his rookie year, but after that they, 
they dropped a lot in 2013. He struggled with some injuries, but then back up every single year, and he hit 190 innings in 2015 just to throw 123 last year because of the elbow soreness and the injuries he dealt with pretty much all season. Um, another guy who kind of struggles with the home run a little bit, but, you know, same thing I talked about with Straley. You know, he's Chen's never given up 31 homers. The most was 29 in his rookie year. But he always, you know, he played in a boom box at Camden Yards where all pitchers give up homers. And he seemed to, despite giving up a lot of homers, a lot of solo homers is what Wei and Chen used to give up. Um, so it never really hurt him too much. Uh, and you'd think, you know, he's a fly ball pitcher, throws a lot of fastballs up in the zone. Uh, you'd think playing it, pitching at Marlins Park would really help him out with a, a big ballpark. But I don't think Marlins fans really got to see the full way in Chen last year. I think he was really, even when he was pitching last year, seemed like he was struggling a little bit with injury. But this year is really the defining year for that contract. I mean, all of his stats were worse last season than they've than they've been. Uh, but the one thing that, you know, could be a good outlook for him, I said all of his stats were worse except for one. His walks were uh, tied, walks per nine were tied for the best number of his career. So walks, you know, are always a little bit of a problem for him. But the walks went down, which means if he can keep the walks down and he can find a little bit of that, you know, performance that he had in Baltimore, he's already got the walks down from Baltimore. He could be an even better pitcher than he was with the Orioles if he avoids injury and is able to figure it out this year. And it's funny you mentioned, you know, pitching up in the zone. It's often preached by by Marlins pitching, and I think a big belief in, in their franchise that's always been pitched down in the zone. And anyone in the organization will tell you that their pitching coaches have always said down in the zone. And and Chen struggled with that because he somewhat tried to be a different pitcher last year, and he tried to pitch down in the zone, and it didn't work for him. But it's surprising to see a guy that th- a lefty that throws low nineties to be effective throwing up in the zone. But there's something about the way Chen does it that it works for him. So I think if Chen goes back to the approach he had in Baltimore and pitching up in the zone more, he he should be more effective. And like you said, if he's not walking, the the big issue is the walks because you know he's going to give up the long ball. There's no way around it. And every pitcher has has their weakness, and Chen's is the long ball. But you know, if, like you said, solo shots. If that's what he gives up, you can live with that. You can live with a couple, one or two mistakes a game, solo shots, a two run game. That's not a big deal. But when you're walking guys and those those home runs compound into two, three runs, that's when it gets into trouble. So Chen, yes, we like we said, he's the highest ceiling on the team uh, in terms of pitching. And any, if anyone in that rotation is going to step up and have you know an ace-like season, it's going to be Wei and Chen. Nobody else is going to put together that impressive of a campaign. So Chen has to be the guy that the Marlins lean on and who could possibly be that guy who steps up for them. But I think the bigger issue is the offense because, and I mean, not issue. I think there's more weight on the offense and we're like, we're talking about, you know, key, the keys to success for the Marlins this season. I think right up there with anything has to be scoring runs. And I mean, of course, every team needs to score runs, but the Marlins need to score runs like they've never scored runs before. Because two runs, three runs, you're not going to have Jose Fernandez to bail you out of a one-run performance every fifth day anymore. So you're going to need to put up two, three, four runs every single game. 
at least. So that's the big issue. And I think the Marlins offense has the capability to do that. You know, Yelich has been swinging the bat impeccably since the second half of last season, even showing the power. And he looked phenomenal in the World Baseball Classic. Stanton's healthy. And uh, that's obviously a huge key. And Bohr is healthy. Bohr struggled in the spring, but he's easing back into it. If those guys are healthy and hitting like they can, the Marlins offense can be great because you forget that the second half of last season, I wrote a piece on this earlier. The Marlins were averaging well over four runs a game in the first half of the season. Second half of the season, they were encroaching on about four runs even. So it was was about 4.8 runs per game to about four even. And while it doesn't seem like a lot, it's a big difference. And the overwhelming theme for that, or the reason for that, is because you had guys like Stanton going down, and that's an obvious, you know, big loss on the team. But Justin Bohr went down with a sprained ankle and was out for almost two months. And people forget that Bohr was, when he had gotten hurt, was about just after the All Star break or just around the All Star break. He had 22 home runs and he was on pace for, you know, 100 RBIs. So it, it, it's stuff like that that you you have to think. If these guys are healthy, this offense can be really, really effective. Yeah, the the crazy part about the Marlins last season offensively, as you touched on it, was they had guys in their lineup who up and down, you know, were hitting for a great average. I mean, a lot of baseball writers think the Marlins might have the best outfield in baseball right now. I mean, it's rivaled, you know, in Boston by those guys out there with Mookie Betts and Jackie Bradley and Ben Attendee and also by the Pirates, you know, if Marte, Polanco, and McCutcheon are playing at the top of their game. But besides that, I mean, Ozuna, Stanton, Yelich has the potential to be the best offensive outfield in baseball. And they had guys up and down a lineup. I mean, Prado was hitting for a good average. D. Gordon started to hit again. I mean, even when they were plugging in guys like Derek Dietrich and JT Realmuto had a great season. But it wasn't turning into runs. They had guys who were hitting over 280 up and down the lineup, but they weren't scoring runs. So... I mean, I think it had something to do with their average with runners in scoring position, which was, you know, not where it needed to be. But if they can start to drive runs in, I mean, it's a pretty simple thing to say how a team can turn turn it around is just to drive runs in. But they just need to get bigger hits with runners in scoring position. And, you know, the power was a problem, but that's because Stan and Bohr were hurt. If they can stay healthy, there's all the, you know, a lot of the power that you need. And if Ozuna is first half Ozuna, not second half Ozuna from last season. You know, he'll be hitting well again. Uh, the Marlins offense, they have the pieces. I mean, that's a pretty dangerous lineup up and down, especially when Prado returns. But if they can't get the hits with the runners in scoring position, it's going to be a tough season. They've got the guys who can get on base. They just got to drive them in. And that's what makes the Martin Prado injury so painful because Prado was maybe the only guy in the lineup that was just – almost automatic with runners in scoring position last season. But like you said, it, it's, it's really, it's, it's almost confusing. I, I, you know, the Marlins hit for such a high average as a team, but couldn't score runs. And I think a big part of the Ozuna struggle was he could not find, you know, a solid spot in the lineup. He was, he went from second to third to fourth to fifth to sixth. I think he hit seventh sometimes. And I think that really, that was really difficult for him because 
he's one, he's a rhythm hitter. You know, he goes he goes through his spurts. You know, he's gonna you know he's gonna struggle. He's, you know, he's gonna go with his one for tens, two for twenties. It's gonna happen. But you also know that there's gonna be times where there's no one as hot as Marcelo Zuna, and you just gotta ride that roller coaster with him. But the big issue is he needs a steady spot, and he was really effective in that six hole starting the season, and it started to uh, started to become difficult for him when he needed to bat fourth. And he started to try. I think he started to put too much pressure on himself to carry the load for Stanton and Bohr, who were both hurt. And he, you know, he's not going to single-handedly lift an offense if he can give you those mid mid twenty home runs and close to hundred RBIs and hit two sixty. You know, you're you're happy if you're if you're the Marlins. But he just struggled so mightily in the second half. He almost provided nothing. And with Bohr and Stanton out. There really was no power in that lineup, and that seemed to be the overwhelming issue for the Marlins was, yeah, they could hit the singles, they could get on base, but the long ball, they were long ball deprived, and you know, with Stanton and Bohr back in that lineup, shouldn't be as much of an issue, but it comes, it goes to be said, you know, Martin Prado is a phenomenal player, a great defender, and a great guy for the clubhouse, you're putting yourself in a little bit of a hole when your third baseman is barely going to break double digits in home runs. So you've got to make that power up elsewhere. And I think that's that's an area where the Marlins are struggling a little bit because they don't have much pop at shortstop and D Gordon's a slap hitter. And so you really only have power in the outfield and, and first base. And so giving up a power position like third base for a guy like Prado is is a little difficult sometimes because – Yes, Prado is incredible with runners in scoring position, but it, it hurts to not have that power bat at the corner. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, first of all, just touching on Ozuna, I mean, if you're a, a Marlins fan who somehow only watched the team after the All-Star break last year, imagine telling that fan that Marcelo Ozuna was on the National League All-Star team. <laughs> I mean, this guy just fell off the table immediately when he got back from the all-star break. I mean, he had an incredible first half was a fill in, made a fill in spot on the all-star team. And then it was just gone and it was crazy to watch. He, you know, started swinging and missing at an incredible rate compared to his first half. But if he can get it back together and hopefully have some power, um, I think the Marlins will be okay with, you know, you know, their third short and second baseman, all those starters. I mean, if any of them, get to 10 homers, you're happy. It kind of seems like at this point, um, Prado, it seems like his ceiling is about 15 and Gordon and Hechevarria maybe combined for 10. But, uh, I think the, the bat that will need to really get over the hump power wise for the Marlins to make them really successful is Christian Yelich, who I think is emerging as a star in the national league right now. Um, I mean, he can, yeah, you can see him. He's like a 20 homer guy. I think he can be a 30 homer guy. And that's what he needs to be, I think, for the Marlins. I think he'll hit 300 this season, no problem. I think he might even be in the uh, MVP race. But for that to happen, I think he's going to need to hit 30 or more homers. And uh, that might be the big hits the Marlins need is when he comes up, you know, you can count on him in a clutch situation to double to the gap or hit a big single or whatever. But I think this season needs to be the year where he can also hit the ball out of the park and maybe drive in three runs at a big time for the Marlins. Um so if he can get over 30 homers, I think I can pick up for, you know, an infield. And, and JT Romuto, who you'd be lucky if he hits, you know, 15 homers this year. Um, 
Yelich can be a guy that can pick up for those, you know, more more guys who hit for more average than power in the infield. And I'm actually pretty mad you just said that because I wanted to be the one that called the Christian Yelich MVP because I genuinely think he can be in the MVP conversation. He his power stroke really came alive in the second half. He he uh, really started to hit the ball in the second half as well. And he, you know, he, in his career going into last season, you know, he's played two full seasons or not quite full seasons. He was a little hurt in 2015, but. He had never eclipsed 55 RBIs. And yes, he moved into a different spot in the lineup, but last year he had 98 RBIs in with, with a lineup that really struggled to get on base at times. Um, that's phenomenal, especially when he didn't have that protection. He didn't have Stanton and Bohr. And a lot of it was just on his shoulders. And, and he seemed to be okay with that. And, and he did not really bat nine in the second half he was almost the only marlin that was really watchable and i could really see him in that mvp conversation because there's very few hitters like him that are just pure that can spray the ball all over the field but can also knock it out of the park and he he's really really blossoming in front of in front of our eyes and he's people forget he he's going into his age 25 season and the marlins did a great job of locking him up but if 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 like you said before, that outfield has the capability of being easily the best in the league, without a doubt in my mind. And so, you like you said, Stanton has to be healthy, and Ozuna needs to be first half Ozuna, not second half Ozuna. And the big thing with Ozuna was the big the big thing that helped him in the first half of the season was he had a newfound plate discipline. You know, his big issue he's always chasing pitches and swinging out of the zone, really too eager to hit. And I think he began to trust that the other guys in the lineup would pick him up. And he started to work deep into counts for the first time and started doing things that we never saw Marcelo Zuna do. But then, as you saw Stanton and Bohr go down, I think he began pressing and trying to knock the ball out of the park, and that became an issue. But going back to the Yelich conversation... The power stroke really emerged in the second half. In the first half, he only had seven home runs, and that's in you know, 83 games. And the second half, in, in 72 games, which you know, it's, after the All Star break, it's shorter. And he had 14 home runs, so he hit double the home amount of home runs in less time. And you can't help but think that that's going to carry over into this in this season. And if he's able to be a 30-plus home run guy, that Marlins lineup is start, starts to look a little scary. So that's definitely something the Marlins need out of Christian Yelich. And don't be surprised if, if Yelich, Stanton, and Bohr combine for 120 home runs. You know, And that, that could be something that the Marlins really, really need, to say the least, with their, with their pitching situation. Um, going back to the pitching situation... Not trying not to dance around on us too much, but forgot to mention Adam Conley. So Adam Conley's been struggling a lot this spring, and the Marlins almost seemed hesitant to name him in the rotation. And it seemed interesting because you had to think, who else are they going to fill fill in for him? You know, is it going to be Jose Urena or someone else? 
and you almost think he won it by default, but I think it was more of a, a, almost sending a message to Conley, like get it together because we we're actively trying to find someone else if you can't. Uh, so what do you think of the Conley situation and, and how that's kind of manifesting right now in front of our eyes? Yeah, I thought, uh, you know, the way Conley pitched last season, 25 starts, a 3.85 ERA, um, you know, he struck out eight and a half batters per nine innings. I thought the way he pitched, like he's projecting himself to be a top three starter in the rotation going into this year. And then he has some troubles in spring training. It's not looking good, but I still think what he did last year deserved, you know, he deserves that number five spot in the rotation. And I think from the left side, he can be a very good pitcher for the Marlins this season. Um, you know, the, the struggles in spring training, that's not what you want to see, but you know, spring training numbers don't tell too, too much about a player. The competition you're facing varies so much, uh, unlike an MLB season where you're, you know, pitching against some of the, some similar players night after night. But, uh, I, I really think his 2016 season was a very successful one. I mean, the whip was a little high at 1.4. He lets a lot of runners on base, but kind of was able to get himself out of a lot of jams last season. Um, another, another thing he struggled with, you know, not being able to pitch too deep into games. But, you know, with the bullpen the Marlins have, if he gives you five innings, you're okay with that, especially as a fifth starter, you know, if he's not giving up too, too many runs. So I think Adam Conley would be an important part of the starting rotation. I don't think – you know, he'll lose this spot in the rotation. I think he'll pitch well enough this year to, even if he's only the number five guy the whole year, I think that'll be fine um, if he's pitching well enough and if he can keep that, you know, maybe some of his peripheral stats. You know, that's the thing about some sabermetric stats. You know, they some of them do a great job of showing how he should be pitching and how what numbers should be going up on the board against him. But sometimes you have seasons where, you know, your ERA is in the mid threes, but all your numbers show it should be in the high fours. And sometimes you just have to accept a season like that. Like, Hey, the way he's pitching, you know, doesn't look great, but the results are quite all right. And if he has another season like that. I mean, that's not the way you want to build a career, but I think the Marlins would be okay with that out of their fifth starter. And, and going back to what you said with spring training stats, not being the end all be all, that's what made it so surprising to me that the Marlins were so hesitant to, you know, name Conley to the rotation because, like you said, you know he was he was great last year, and he he really showed signs of effectiveness. He he took, you know, he had a no hitter into the seventh inning one one game. He 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 showed signs where he could go out there and he was unhittable at times. And yeah, he got touched up every once in a while. But he was, he's a young arm. He's a lefty. Lefties t- tend to develop a little slower, and he really seemed to develop a pitchability about him as, as the season progressed. And, you know, you had that fluke injury where he punched the top of the dugout at Wrigley and messed his hand up. And that was a big loss for the Marlins for a while. And it's hard to come back from a broken finger right away when you're pitching, but it's, it's tough when you're trying to, you know, fight for a spot you think you already deserve. So Conley, I'm sure thinks he earned that spot and, he deserves that spot from his performance last year. And I was just very surprised to see that the Marlins were so hesitant to give him that spot after what he did last year. And, you know, spring is such a small sample size. It's not, it's not enough to really say Conley isn't doing well, unless there's something, you know, that we 
aren't seeing, you know, behind the scenes, maybe he's really struggling in practice too, you know, and his bullpens and everything. So that's, has to be a small, you know, sort of alarm for Marlins fans there. But I, I think Conley will settle in. He's, he's a smart pitcher and he should be fine, but he should, I, I honestly, even for to take that a step further, I think he'll, he'll end up near the middle and to, or top of the rotation uh, as he settles in this season. But the big thing out of that rotation, the, the, I guess the big question mark, other than Chen, has to be Edison Volquez. Because, like we said earlier, Chen has the highest ceiling, probably, but Volquez isn't that far off. You know, a couple years ago in Kansas City, he had a really, really good season. And yes, he struggled the last two years. He was still, you know, a serviceable starting pitcher. But Edison Volquez used to be you know, a top of the rotation guy. And you know he still has that in him somewhere. Just a lot of his issues is, you know, his control issues. And he just tends to go in, in spurts of striking people out. But, you know, in in 2013, he led the league in earned runs. And that's, you know, not something you want to lead the league in. And control has also been a big issue for him. But... You, you know, actually, he also led the league and earned runs last year. But anyway, you know that season with with Cincinnati, he went seventeen and six with with a three two one ERA, and he, he was right at two hundred innings. And obviously, you know, he's not going to go seventeen and six for the Fish this year. But that was two thousand eight, and you think, okay, maybe that season was a fluke. But then you go down to you know two thousand fourteen in Pittsburgh, and he pitched to a. Th- 3.04 ERA right at 200 innings again and he was 13 and 7. So, yeah, he also led the league in wild pitches, but you you know what you're going to get with him. So, it's it's part of the idea, you know, he's only going into his age 33 season. He's definitely not, you know, running out of gas by any means. So, I think it's that kind of sporadicness that you have of Edison Volquez that you don't know what to expect, but if he can be, we're not asking him to be, you know, 2008 All-Star Cincinnati Edison Volquez, but if he could even be 2015 Kansas City Royal Edison Volquez, who went 13-9 and and ate 200 innings, I think the Marlins would be more than thrilled. Yeah, especially having him, you know, at the top of um, their rotation. Starting opening day for Miami. I mean, last year wasn't a great year, obviously. You said he led the league and earned runs as Walks were up, his strikeouts were down. I mean, his whip was up at almost 1.6. It's not what you want to see. But again, we talk about the FIP. It was at 4.5, where his ERA was almost at 5.5. So he should have really been allowing one less run than he was. I mean, he kind of dealt with a Kansas City defense that was riddled with injuries, um, didn't help him out at all. But back in 2015, pitching for that Royals team that won the World Series. I mean, he was dominant. Three five five ERA. Pitched two hundred innings. Pitched game one of the World Series for the Royals as well. Um, so you know he had a lot of success back then. And you talked about twenty fourteen with Pittsburgh just two years ago, where his ERA almost dipped below three in one hundred ninety two innings. So Volquez has the stuff um, to be a good pitcher and a good top of the rotation pitcher. Maybe not the guy at this point you want to be your ace. But as we've talked about, the Marlins, you know, they're going to be able to overlook a mediocre rotation with a good bullpen. And I think it's okay that he's at the top of their rotation because I think he has the stuff to pitch well enough 
that uh, he can be a go-to guy, you know, if they really get themselves in a situation at the end of the year where they're, you know, last week of the season and they're needing some wins to get into the postseason. If you give him the ball, you can still have confidence with him on the mound and you can have confidence with the bullpen behind him. So I think it was a good signing of Volquez despite the year last year. And I think, you know, you talked about the Marlins buying high on Dan Straley. They bought low on Edison Volquez, and I think it might pay off in the long run, you know, just a two-year deal. But I think he could have two very productive seasons for Don Mattingly. Absolutely. And, you know, buying low on on, on, on Volquez was huge because, you know, Chen – they're kind of handcuffed to for a little while now. And, and should Volquez not work out, you know, you only have him for two years. So worst case scenario, Volquez doesn't work out. He's not, you know, attached to the Marlins hip there, I guess. And so he's definitely a good, you know, low risk, high reward guy for the fish and definitely one of their better signings of the off season. Um, He's definitely a huge key. I think him and Chen, could they combine for 25 wins, you know, 30 wins? And I know that's a pretty lofty goal. I think 25 is more more attainable. The Marlins will be thrilled because, you know, like we said, the, the bullpen's going to bridge that gap to the end of the game. And the starters probably aren't going to get a lot of wins because they'll probably be out of there in the fifth inning. And, and Mattingly might yank guys a little early because he knows he has that bullpen. And has the ability to yank guys early. And, you know, another thing that's overlooked is Mattingly did a great job of handling the bullpen last year. You know, Fernando Rodney was was uh, kind of a mess towards the end of the season. But other than that, and he, he didn't have a choice but to use him. But And with Ramos being hurt, he was kind of out of options. But now you give Mattingly all of these weapons at his disposal and basically you know if you're Mike Hill you just said here's all these weapons use them wisely and I have full confidence that Don Mattingly is going to use them wisely so that's something that's going to be very very effective for the Marlins and very encouraging for Don Mattingly so yes the rotation may not get a lot of wins but one of the better coaches in baseball is handling one of the deepest pens in baseball. And that's something that is very encouraging. Going to kind of transition here into towards the end. I like to, you know, kind of get a little off topic for lack of a better words and kind of talk about maybe some more extreme things. And I was thinking earlier today that maybe a Danny Echeverria isn't the shortstop of the future. And so this is my kind of extreme take of the day. I think maybe after this season, it may be time to you know move on from a Danny Echeverria and look for another shortstop. And I'm curious what you think of that, Connor, and what your hot take might be on something else. Um, I've been halfway on that train for the better part of last season. You know, he's kind of known. If you think of Danny Echeverria, you think, oh, not a great bat, but he's a good defender and he's got some speed. If you really dive deep into Denny Hetcheverry at shortstop, he's more of an average defender than a good defender. He's flashy. And yeah, he's a flashy guy. He makes some good plays. He makes some, you know, nice diving plays. But overall, his skill at shortstop is, you know, at in his best day, just above average. And he's not a good hitter. I mean, to put it bluntly, he's just not a good hitter. Um, 
And at some point you have to think about, I know, you know, a lot of teams build a, you know, you just maybe if you have a great offense at shortstop, you just have a great defender who might get you a couple big hits and hit 220 and that's about it. But at some point, you know, the shortstop position is evolving and there's guys like Corey Seager and Carlos Correa and, you know, Trevor Story, Aledemus Diaz, all these young shortstops who hit for average, hit for power and play very well on the defensive end. And, you know, it's hard to get them in the draft, you know, it seems like a lot of them are coming now, but it's still hard to pick them out in the draft. Um, but at some point it might, you know, I kind of agree with you. It might be time to move on from Echeverria maybe after the season. And my hot take, I think I, uh, I think I spewed out a little bit earlier, but Christian Yelich is going to be in the top five of the conversation for national league MVP this year. And I think that might be a good transition to us, you know, f- wrapping it up here at the end and just talking about, you know, what happens with the Marlins this year and where they finish and what really what happens in baseball in 2017. Yeah, so to sum up the Echeverria conversation, I think it's time to move on from him, like you said, because you've got guys like Correa, Lindor, and all these shortstops that can really hit the ball. And it's not a defensive position anymore. Yes, you want to have a guy that can play some good shortstop like Angels and Simmons, but I think it's really become an offensive position. And it used to be the corner, you know, the corner outfield guys and the corner infield guys, but it's really turning into an offensive position. And I know you can't move on from Echeverria without a contingency plan, but even I see JT Riddle can't be much worse than Echeverria. I mean, Echeverria, like we were talking about earlier, all the metrics point to him being an average fielder with a little flair. And you know, he can't hit the ball very effectively. So, how could JT Riddle be much worse? And I wouldn't mind trading Echeverria, putting him in part of a package either for prospects to build up that farm system or try and get a starting pitcher, call up JT Riddle, and and go from there. But obviously that's not something the Marlins would do. That's just my crazy uh, MLB The Show franchise move I would do because I just am not a fan of Echeverria, put simply. I just don't believe in him. And he doesn't show any signs of improvement. So maybe that's some a position you draft in the first round this year if you're the Marlins. I know pitching always seems to be where they go in the first round, but maybe they should mix it up. Maybe it's time to draft a bat uh, or a shortstop. But going into what we said, you know, your hot t- take with Yelich, we I, I agree with that wholeheartedly, and my expectations, you know, on the NL East, it seems to be that the Nationals are the team to beat, you know, and and that's not anything groundbreaking there. But the Mets are starting to look like the 2015 Mets again. And Steven Matz just went down. He's got some some arm problems again. But Syndergaard is healthy. Matt Harvey is getting healthy. And people forget that the Mets last year, their entire rotation was just beat up. Harvey was out for the season. Mats was pitching with a bone spur. Syndergaard was pitching with a bone spur. So you have, and Cespedes was playing hurt. Um, you have all these guys that were that were injured, and I'm sure there were more injuries that I was missing. But Familia suspension ended up being much shorter than many thought it would be. I think that Mets team could easily creep up on the Nationals. In terms of the Marlins, I think Vegas has the odds of 
over or the over under wins at about seventy six and a half. I see them being right around that clip. One because Vegas is never wrong, and two because it just seems about right. I just don't see the Marlins getting over that 500 hump with that rotation. But one thing I will say is that if there's one average looking team or one team that's projected in the mid seventies that could get up into the mid eighties and maybe compete for a second wildcard spot, it's the Marlins because they have a top tier offense and an outfield that ranks with anyone in the MLB and by top tier offense, maybe they didn't put up the runs of a top tier offense last year, but talent, you know, one through nine is, is about as good as anyone and has the potential to be about as good as anyone. So, you know, we touched on it earlier. The big issue is, can they drive in runs? Cause they showed they can hit the ball. But I think if all these guys are hitting 300 and, you got Stanton and Bohr healthy. That offense can't do anything but trend upwards. Uh, so I really think that they're going to be around the 500 mark, but they do have a chance to surprise uh, to surprise everyone. But most projections have them around the fourth in the division mark. I think they'll finish third, but it, it, it's it'll it'll be interesting. It's definitely it's definitely a team that's worth watching. Yeah, just a quick plug on the uh shortstop situation there shortstop in college park playing for maryland named kevin smith who's probably going to go in the first round of this year's draft hits for power hits for average great defender something the marlins should take a look at but uh as far as the nl east um i think it's a tough position for the marlins not just now but for years to come the net or the mets and the nats are built to win now and they're built to last with young position players young starting pitchers um, I think the Mets take the division this year, but in a close one, I think the Nats get that first wild card spot. I actually think the Mets might win the World Series this year. That's my uh, another bold prediction if that lineup or that rotation can stay healthy. But Marlins, I think they finished third. Looking at you know best case scenario for the Marlins, you know Hill put together a great bullpen, and you can kind of go on fishstripes.com right now and give your thoughts about the Marlins front office. Uh, in a little survey there on fishstripes.com. But uh, I think he did a great job of putting together a bullpen that can mask a starting rotation that isn't great. And if the offense plays well and they can drive in runs this season and everybody plays to their potential on the offensive side, I mean, they have a lineup that can compete with anyone and they have a bullpen that can compete with anyone. And there's teams, especially in the American League, that play like that. Not a good rotation, but they hit well and they pitch well out of the bullpen. I think the Marlins could win in the mid to upper 80s and maybe steal a second wild card spot. But on the other side, the uh, maybe what could be the worst case scenario for Miami is that that rotation just can't be fixed and Stanton gets hurt again and they can't drive in runs. And no matter how good the bullpen is, it's just not enough. And that, you know, 70 to 75 win range seems more likely. But, you know, they're a team where their best case scenario is the playoffs, and there's ten or more teams in the in major leagues where their best case scenario is not anywhere near the playoffs. So, I think they're in a position this year where they're not going to win that division because the Mets and the Nationals are too strong. But there's a chance to see playoff baseball in Miami for the first time since 2003. 
Absolutely. And so we are going to wrap it up for the first Fish Bites podcast of the year and of this young season. Uh, We are excited for opening day in a few days here. And we're actually also going to start a question segment. So please feel free to ask us any questions, comment on this article that will be posted and at the bottom, you know, ask us any questions and we will answer them at the beginning or the end of the next podcast. We'll be back next week with our thoughts on the first series for the fish and excited to see how they open up the season. I'm RM Layton and I'm with Connor Newcomb, your place to go for all things Miami Marlins, fishstripes.com. We really appreciate you taking some time to listen to us. Please rate, subscribe, and give us feedback as well as ask us any questions you want answered. Happy almost opening day, everyone.